Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So you might know someone who's reading a romantic novel right now. It is a genre that blends romance and fantasy, and it has become wildly popular. Why else? Because TikTok. Because TikTok has turned people into intense fans. Today on the podcast, you'll hear about romanticy and how TikTok is transforming book fandom. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. I'm just going to guess that you've heard the name Sarah J. Maas, but maybe you don't know why. Maybe you don't know why you're hearing so much about her. Well, let me first tell you, she is one of the best-selling novelists in the world right now. She's known for these sprawling, smutty series of books that fit under this new genre, coined romanticy. It's, uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a mix of fantasy and romance. Sarah's books have sold more than 38 million copies worldwide, which is a number that I need to repeat. 38 million copies worldwide. That is stunning. But what I want to get into is the nature of the popularity. That's what interests me because her sales are powered by super fans on TikTok. Videos about her books have amassed billions of views. That is billions with a B. Sarah J. Mass's latest book, House of Flame and Shadow, which is a wild title, is out now. Around the table, I've got a few readers who have delved pretty deeply into these worlds. Catherine Van Arendonk is here. Heather, no, Heather O'Neill is here. Macda Mulatu is here. Catherine, Heather, Macda, welcome to the show. How's it going, Hello. everybody? Hi. Hi, I am so excited for you guys to tour me around this universe because I have a lot to learn. Uh, Catherine, we'll start with you. You've read every one of Sarah J. Mass's books. Can you describe the themes and the tropes that tie her universe together? Okay, so here's what you've got. Ready. You have a young human woman or possibly part fairy. She may got turn it. into a fairy partway through the series. She's probably magical and doesn't necessarily know why or that or how yet. Um, she has some deep trauma that is either from her childhood or that she is experiencing currently. And the process of her coming into her own and achieving her power will involve both a big fantasy world map, falling in love with an older, probably fairy lover who probably has wings. And in order to do that, she's going to have to overcome whatever trauma that she experienced in her young life. I mean, this is really one of the things that I think sets Sarah J. Mass's books apart from the rest of the genre is how well she's able to use the kind of trauma plot that's become very popular, mm. very familiar to a lot of readers. It becomes a structural device for her because it lets her stitch together this big fantasy worlds and sort of learning more about them and accepting the reality of this magic around you with the like, but I'll find myself. And when I, when I choose myself, then I can also choose love. Right. And then the love will fulfill me, but I can, I, I get to be a, whole person the yeah. other thing is that all of her heroines have magical back tattoos 
<laughs> but I also just want to describe to people listening um, to, to this conversation that your face got all soft as you sort of started talking about the love story dimension of yeah. this. Does she write love well, would you say, Catherine? She lo writes love um, intensely and mm. with great uh, with great feeling. She believes strongly. These are books for people who read romance, but maybe are not so familiar with fantasy or people who read mm. a lot of fantasy and are maybe not familiar with romance. The idea of the faded mate is very central to these books. So like there is someone who's there for you. And then when you finally have this probably physical but also emotional connection with them your relationship with them is like you are bonded beyond the level of just you are sexual partners or like you like each other like you can feel each other across space and time you know uh, uh, heather o'neill is sarah j mass your your faded mate you just started delving into this universe what is what has that been like for you well, first I sort of approached it because I had a prejudice against the genre and then okay. it became so popular. And my, my daughter, she had, um, she bought five copies of fourth wing for Christmas. And I was like, <laughs> what are you, why are you buying five of the same book? That's a and Rebecca said, Yarrow's book, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that's a, And she said, well, I'm buying one for each of my friends because I can't <laughs> be in this universe all alone. <laughs> and then I was really, because I come from the genre of literary fiction, which yeah. is, a genre where plot does is not the focus of it. It's plot is just there to kind of ease along your yes. thoughts and revelations. So I was like, you know, it's it's different that on the structural level, the storytelling is more about sharing it with other readers. Mm. So you don't have this kind of where you're inside the book just kind of analyzing that. It's this world that you bring out, you dress up as the characters, you cosplay, you write fan fiction. So I was really interested to you know, check it out. So I did check out um, Sarah Moss, Sarah Mass, who was actually um, the book that kind of shocked me and surprised me the most. And one of the things I was so interested in was that the perspective of feminism, what's happening in literary fiction is so radically different hmm. than romanticy. Whereas literary fiction, we're going through a movement of sort of the power of victimhood, the passivity, you know, you have characters like Atesha Mesfet, Moshfei's character who stays in bed for an entire year taking drugs mm. because she just can't deal with the world. And we have Sarah Bernstein, who just won the Giller Prize for Study of Obedience about yeah. a girl who follows every rule um, that men tell her to do and becomes toxic. So there's no good relationships right now in literary fiction. <laughs> it is the dismantling <laughs> of love. Okay. You know, at its deepest level. And then I, so, and then I approached this and the the idea of relationships, like I had had this old um, prejudice against romance where it's just a young girl looking for Mr. Big. And if she can find someone who's so much, the, the better, more powerful he is than her, the more her success is. But then in romanticy, it's like the heroine is the most powerful one. And, mm. and a man has to be somehow meet her mat make meet her match and get to her level somehow yeah. to win her love so i was so interested and i was like oh this is a view of equality um in in a projected ideal for young women i'm trying to imagine you going back to the literary fiction world and you're saying that this is what we should be doing this is the, <laughs> this is the thing that we are missing at this moment <laughs> uh, heather i also got to say romanticy being half fantasy and half romance mm -hmm. you know these sarah's books particularly the famous for the sex scenes, what do you make of the style of smut that you're seeing? Oh, I loved it. Another thing too, I was so used to um, negative sort of, you know, romances that in the 
Yeah. Or you just meet a man who's there to for you to project your internal misogyny on. So um, when I was just this explosion of sex in the novel, and there was, you know, every time you pass a corner, it's full of an orgy of angels, which, you know, <laughs> element, I would never be able to get this past my editors. They would be like, why? Why an orgy of angels? But with Sarah Mass's universe, it's just like, oh, they're just blocking the exit. Those angels are always having sex. <laughs> But um, and then I had read an interview with Rebecca Yaros, and she had said that, well, I put the dragons in for the men and the sex in for the women. And I was like, I'm not entirely sure, because when I was reading the Sarah Moss book, my partner was next to me and he was reading his book. And he said, read out loud whenever there's a sex part. And then I would read them. And there was like one um, detail where um, Bryce comes out, the heroine comes out of a bathroom at a bar and she's like, oh, I just had sex with a lion. It was pretty, you know, and it was okay, but it really like, you know, spunked me up. And then I was, and I said to my, my partner, I was like, doesn't this bother you? It's like bestiality. And yeah. he was like, oh no, Bryce, that's my girl. Sometimes she just needs to make, she needs to make love to a lion, Heather. And she just needs that. I'm supportive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, it's a, because oftentimes we think if there's a female fan base, yeah. that the books are only for women. But right. I was like, this sex is no. like, you know, because it also, it matches game, game of thrones. Like as soon as you go into the, the brothels of yes. like, it's like, it's what men like too in their fantasy. Oh. So I, was, I thought it was really interesting. And the women are just so, and that the, that was the other thing I noticed both in new romance and romanticy was this reclamation of female desire Yeah, and women just desire. And I mean, you're in this universe of Sarah Mass where there's all sorts of creatures. You have fairies, werewolves, vampires, angels, and what they all have in common is they're very horny. Yeah. And there's also a universe where everybody is fabulously good looking. So it's like you're reading the book and it's everyone's getting it on. I love that Sarah Mass is, is serving the people what, what they appear to be looking for. Magda, can we talk a little bit about the way that the, this, this fandom is powered by TikTok? How does that shape the kinds of conversations that are happening about Sarah Mass's books? Yeah, for sure. First of all, I want to say, Heather, that the fact that your daughter bought five copies of Fourth Wing so that like that could be a communal reading experience is so tender and sweet and lovely. I'm obsessed with that. Um, and yeah, it is kind of funny sometimes describing the sex scenes. You feel like a little bit insane. Like yeah. the moment that you talk about these books aloud, you're yes. like, what am I What am I talking about? Catherine's like, vigorously so nodding as you say that. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, but yeah, TikTok has been like quite a big driver of romanticy in general, uh, but particularly Sarah J. Mass's books. I mean, I first started reading Sarah's work when I was a teenager in high school, hmm. and I started with Throne of Glass, which began as fan fiction that Sarah eventually filed the serial numbers off of, as they say, and then had traditionally published. And it hit me like right at the perfect time. Like, you know, as a young girl, I think the strong female character trope it was just like exactly what i needed yeah. and like the heroines were also kind of bookish and like obsessed with the arts like i was just in the prime position to really fall in love with those books um but the series that took off for sarah was akatar or a court of thorns and roses um and it's been really interesting for me because of the three series throne of glass akatar and crescent city um, I think Akatar is the one that focuses the most on romance, mm. although that's present in, in all three series. 
Um, and so it's funny that like, that is, is the one that blew up on, on TikTok. Um, I enjoy the TikToks, you know, about her books. There the billion are views some, of like, truly, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are like some truly deranged videos <laughs> about Sarah's work, um, that are like funny and engaging and like great to watch. Um, but it is also really curious to me that, most of the commentary that I find on TikTok about her work doesn't really extend beyond the romance or the central love story. Hmm. Um, and there's this sense that, you know, people are reading these books for escapism, which is great. I love escapism. I think everyone needs a little bit of it. Um, but romanticy is still not like true romance or core romance. There's still that fantasy element. Sure. And one of the things about fantasy that I think makes it compelling for someone like me um, are these kind of complicated political systems um, and the kind of revolutionary aspect of fantasy. And that typically is something that I don't see discussed when people talk about romanticy in general, um, but particularly with Sarah J. Mass, um, who, especially in like this most recent Crescent City book, um, has really made use of this kind of like anti-colonial, anti-imperialist language. Mm. Um, and not only is there kind of no critical engagement with that in the fan base, or at least you have to hunt really hard to find it. Um, but Sarah herself has like a very buttoned up public image. Um, she's got like a Taylor Swiftian quality about her, actually. Mm. That's how I'm going to sell you on her element. I'm got in. A Taylor you did it. <laughs> I, but, I'm, but I'm curious about that. The, the idea that you write all these books that have this strong sort of, you know, uh, power struggle, colonialism, um, occupation, oppression, all those themes, and then they don't really present themselves in real life. Is there, and by that I mean like in the author's real life in a sense, um, do you get the sense that uh, the fans are picking up on those themes and want to engage with them at all, or are they just kind of like not the most interesting parts to connect with? I think from what I'm seeing, it yeah. just doesn't seem like there is as much interest in engage, engaging with those parts of, of these books. Like I said, it is something that you can find if you really hunt, if you really search. Um, but yeah, the, the romance aspect of it does tend to kind of overshadow everything else. Yeah. And yeah, like that goes back to what Heather was saying about like, these are books that center female desire in like really prominent, really interesting ways. And that's something that, you know, should be valued and should be celebrated. Yeah. Uh, but it is curious that that comes at the cost of kind of everything else. I, uh, I have to say, Catherine, the level of super fandom that we're seeing on TikTok and Instagram for these books is like a little wild. What hits for what's what's what hits home for you in terms of this kind of fandom? Because you see like people getting docs for liking the wrong couples, you know, readers assuming the worst of your articles or, you know, selling different versions of books at different stores. Like this is this is a crazy level of fandom that you just don't see very often. What's the thing that, you know, strikes you the most? You know, I think. I think because a lot of what we are talking about, um, this sense of female desire, the idea of these escapist spaces that foreground these feminist heroes, but particularly the, a lot of the romance tropes, the enemies to lovers thing, the happily ever after, this has really been a, a closely held um, element of romance fandom for yeah. a very long time. And a lot of romance readers, I think, feel very protective of these spaces. Yeah. And there is a sense that any kind of criticism of these books, and by that I don't mean saying negative things necessarily, but just like, let's unpack what's happening here. Like, let's actually take apart these elements um, and 
do the kind of analysis that exactly that we were just talking about of like, like what else is going on here? Besides, not that the romance is bad, but like, <laughs> let's talk about how they're all about throwing up the elites, you know, yes. um, also. And there is this sense of like, I don't want you to actually take these books apart because it has taken us so long to reach any kind of mainstream legitimacy mm. that at the moment that we are finally getting there, it's like everyone feels like we're being attacked now. Right. And so there, I do think there is this this protectiveness around around these books. But I, I just want to say that for myself, it is so exciting that we are now at a place where I can be on a radio show and be like, great, we're talking about fairy smut. Let's take it seriously. Let's all talk <laughs> yeah. about the fairy smut we're reading, right? Like, it's very, very exciting. And that this sort of a, a celebratory moment, I think. Heather, 30 and seconds to you. Also, I was going to add about the sexuality, whereas when we had in male fantasy, the sex, there was so much violence yeah. and rape, and it was about women being captured. Whereas what's amazing about these universe is that you can have all that perversion in your wildest sexual fantasies and yeah. have consent. And I think yeah. women are just really loving that. I, I think that is a perfect place to leave it. I'm really curious about whether Heather's going to try to work in an angel orgy into her next book. But we got to leave it there. Heather O'Neill, Catherine Van Arendonk, Magda Miladu. Thank you so much for your time, y'all. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Of course. Montreal's Heather O'Neill is a novelist and one of this year's panelists on Canada Reads. Magda Miladu is a digital journalism fellow at The Walrus in Edmonton. And Catherine Van Arendonk is a TV critic at Vulture in New Jersey. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, and you are listening to Commotion. So it's around now that a lot of big music festivals, we're talking Coachella or Bonnaroo, they release their lineups. They make their lineups public. Now, what do you do when you see one of those festival posters? Usually, you look to see, hey, these are the people who are headlining. And then maybe, maybe you scroll a bit to see if you like any other bands on the bill. And then if you like enough of them, maybe you buy your tickets or book your flights. But Tom Bryan doesn't look at festival posters the way that you and I do. Tom is a writer at Stereogum, and he spends a lot of time analyzing the Coachella poster every year because what he sees in it are all the politics of the music industry, the dominant players, whose stock is rising, and who's being relegated to the very tiny little small print that you can barely even read. I had a chance to speak with Tom about the dark science of Coachella poster fonts and how he became such a big expert on it. I should say, first off, that I do this because I think it's funny, and I'm not totally <laughs> sure that it's a real barometer, but uh, but I have always sort of appreciated the the merciless nature of Coachella font sizes. Like, <laughs> if, uh, if, if you were booked to perform at Coachella and you were really excited, you get to go out to the desert and play in a tent that's the size of an aircraft carrier and make a lot of money doing it you might be bummed when the poster comes out and you are in the teeny tiny font and you need a magnifying glass to see your own name. It, it <laughs> lays out a certain hierarchy 
in a in a very very obvious way that I appreciate because uh because of how mean it is. <laughs> okay, I didn't realize that you're like you like it because you're pro meanness. You're pro not meanness, but let's say bluntness. Like it is there's something really blunt about it. So okay, so you've been doing this for a decade. You look at a new Coachella poster and then you begin your process. What is your process? How do you go about it? I, there's not really a process. Uh, my my process upon looking at the Coachella poster is I think the same as everybody else, which is you take in the headliners and you're like, oh, hmm, okay, interesting. And then you get flooded with all these names that you've never seen in your entire life. <laughs> I've been a working music critic for 20 years and every Coachella poster, there's still like at least 40% of it. I'm like, who are these people? And it used to always be dance DJs, but now sometimes it's TikTok people or now sometimes it's like, you know, a K-pop act that has no real profile over here. And uh, and it's always interesting to kind of pick through and figure out how they arrived on these people and how they decided that some of them are bigger draws than others. So let's talk about this year's lineup um, at Coachella. So this year is headlined by Lana Del Rey on Friday, Tyler, the creator on Saturday, and then Doja. Doja Cat has got Sunday. What do these choices tell us about where the industry is right now? Uh, they tell us that budgets are shrinking. Uh, is, uh, that's uh, uh, Coachella, you know, Coachella always likes to make a big, 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 big splash with their headliners. And uh, and they, they did it last year when they got Frank Ocean out of wherever he was. And then that turned out to be a bad idea. Um, it, it, Frank Ocean was not ready to perform in a Coachella-type environment. Yes. And it worked out badly. Um, so I think... What we're seeing now is a little bit of a refocusing. Uh, all of these artists sort of kind of harken back to Coachella's like alternative culture roots, even though none of them are what you'd really call alternative rock artists. Yeah. Uh, Lana Del Rey is the closest thing, and you can't say that she rocks. Like that, that would just be a strange thing to say. Yeah. Uh, they're all based in Southern California, and they all have sounds that are. Uh, uh, sort of stuck to the the southern california aesthetic um they're they're all younger uh doja has big pop hits the other two really don't yeah. they all have big 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 cult fan bases um and they're all strong live performers they've all played the festival before usually multiple times you know tyler was up there with odd future like 10 12 years ago yeah uh, and uh, and and Lana Del Rey has a song called Coachella Woodstock in my mind. Like this is this is a it is a a, a career defining moment for all of them. Yeah. And I think it's also kind of Coachella being like, well, you know, we're not going to get Beyonce again. What are the other major trends that you can identify by analyzing this Coachella poster? Oh, uh, well, they, they're definitely going all in on the international thing, which I think is interesting and is cool uh, because, well, for one thing, there is a whole, whole lot of uh, Spanish-speaking artists all up and down the bill from all across the sort of Spanish music diaspora. Yeah. Um, uh, Peso Pluma is in one of the, the sort of right below the headliner spots. And um, if you go to Coachella, it is not all rich white kids there. It is rich kids from a diverse set of backgrounds <laughs> certainly all rich kids but um you know it's southern california there's a lot of like if you are driving to coachella and scanning through the radio as i once did you will hear a whole lot of tubas there's a lot of regional mexican music down there right and um so that there's that there's a lot of k-pop there's a lot of like japanese pop 
there's people from France. And, and, and so instead of, of pitching to some imagined mainstream, they're like, we've got 50 different cults that are all represented here. And every one of these, like this, this uh, Japanese fictional hologram lady, uh, Hatsune Miko is going to probably have 5,000 very geeked up kids in a tent to, to see the hologram. Look, I think when most of us are looking to gauge an artist's popularity, the place you look to is like Spotify stats, right? Like, for example, let's say BB Rexa. BB Rexa appears on four different tracks that have over a billion streams on, on Spotify. That's pretty wild. Then you look at the Coachella poster. She's like somewhere in the third line of Sunday's lineup in a really tiny, tiny font. How do you account for this discrepancy of like, hey, you've had some really big songs, but the place you belong in this poster is like, you know, somewhere down in the middle? Well, BB Rexa is an interesting example because uh, she has big hits and nobody buys her albums. She does not have an identifiable fan base in any way. She's a uh, she's sort of like there's lots of people who have probably enjoyed BB Rexa songs and have no idea who she is. She's a she's a singles that, artist, right? Like she's not like you don't yeah, have yeah, there's no there's no narrative of BB Rexa. Right. And so at a place like Coachella, I bet BB Rexa will get a full tent full of people who are psyched to hear I'm good and the Florida Georgia line song or whatever. But it's she doesn't have that like built in draw that uh, that that, you know, Blackpink or whoever had last year. Like like there's not there's not this like uh, this teeming horde of BB Rexa fans <laughs> rexinators or whatever who are who are getting ready to to go off to it. um and and that matter the the festival you know hit songs matter in a festival environment but they don't matter as much as the sort of cult of personality that builds up around certain artists and bb rexa like fundamentally does not have that and you see that a lot on this poster like Poi Luray is very famous with a couple big hits but she's down there in the the bb rexa font size and uh, it's because nobody expects Poi Luray to, to put on a great show. Like, B.B. Rex's most famous onstage moment was somebody threw a phone at her head. Like, yes, it's, that's uh, true. It's, it, it is an opportunity, I would say, for some of these artists to kind of build up their credentials that way or to have a, have a big headline-grabbing moment. But uh, there's a reason why they're that small and why, like, Justice or whoever is, is, is bigger. Tom Bryan, thank you so much for being here, man. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, what a blast. Uh, good talking to you. Tom Bryan is a writer for Stereo Gum based in Charlottesville, Virginia. You have to read his festival poster font sign situation. You can read that article. It's called 19 Thoughts on the Coachella 2024 poster. You can find it on StereoGum.com right now. And in case you haven't seen it, we'll also get the Coachella poster up on our Instagram. That is at CommotionCBC. And that is it for the podcast today. Remember, you can listen to any episode of Commotion anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here, I'd love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.